Welcome back to the Be Well by Kelly podcast. It has been such a labor of love to launch this thing and I am overjoyed by the reviews I'm getting. I just, I can't tell you how much it means to me to hear from you guys and to hear what you're loving and what you want to hear more of. So I'm I'm listening and I'm super excited. If you guys have subscribed to this podcast, don't forget to rate it and leave a review. That's how people hear about it and get this amazing information into their earbuds every single day. Today's episode is sponsored by my friends at Now Foods. Uh, Now Foods is a pharmaceutical grade supplement company. It's family owned and it's in Chicago. I love Now Foods because of their quality control. They have certifications like the NSF, which guarantees that Olympians can use their products. And I love that they're family owned and made here in the United States. Very few companies have that kind of quality standards. And I know that I can trust their products with my family, my friends, and my clients. So if you are looking for a supplement company that you can trust, Now Foods is it. Please welcome science journalist, New York Times bestselling author, and a dear friend of mine, Max Lugavere, to the show. So, Max, thanks for coming to hang out. Thanks for having me. Are you kidding? You guys, if you don't know who Max Lugavere is, let me just let me just go down a rabbit hole for you here. I'm already blushing. <laughs> <laughs> I was just telling Max before we started taping that his first book, Genius Foods, I felt like I loved just as much, if not more, than Brain Brain from Dr. Perlmutter. I felt like the science was sound. It was approachable. It was motivating. But most of all, it was doable. And you gave key takeaways that people could immediately start implementing into their life if they were dealing with any type of neurodegenerative disease. Mm. So... Can you tell our listeners how this all started and give us a background into who you are and how and why you wrote Genius Foods? Yeah, sure. Well, thank you for that. Man, it's it's humbling to hear you say that because, you know, I mean, I know a lot of your fans, I think, you know, have have found me over the years. And I think what's so great about you and what you do as well, you're very... Um, all of your tips and your approach, your philosophy—it's rooted in, in actionable, you know, things that people can do and, and not drive themselves too crazy with, but rooted in science. And I know, like, every time I'm with you, I learn something new, and it's just a same. It's just an amazing. I have a lot of fun when we're on panels together too. Yeah, it's so great. <laughs> I'm like, I agree with Max, and also, <laughs> but it's I love learning. I love learning new things, and it's not often that you do that. You know, like that you get that opportunity, and so. Yeah, I just like, I appreciate you so much. But yeah, for me, I mean, I got interested in this um, because I, I my career began as a journalist and my academic career, I went to school and I ended up becoming a journalist. I used to work for a TV network co-founded by Al Gore called Current TV. And I got to cover topics uh, related to sort of news and information, um, but they ranged from health to technology to geopolitics to the environment, all that stuff. and. When I left that job, after about six years, I was in my late 20s, uh, my mother got sick. And I've always been incredibly close to my mom. I'm the firstborn child. Um, you know, I've, I have a very small family and my mom was an only child too. So t- tiny family. And I've always just been, you know, my mom was the, the North Star in my universe. And when I left that job on TV where I was kind of tethered to LA for the majority of my 20s, I started to spend more and more time in New York, which is where I'm from, which is where my mom lived. And 
in her late 50s, you know, she was still very young. That's when she started to show the earliest symptoms of what would ultimately be diagnosed as a form of dementia. Did you did she notice it first or did your you and your brothers and your dad notice it? She would she, I would talk to her on the phone regularly when I was out in LA and she started telling me about all you know the, all these different like doctors appointments that she started taking and that she started to experience brain fog and little things in her health would start to go wrong and I didn't uh, really have a framework for understanding what she was talking about in fact I thought that a lot of what she was complaining of was just sort of par for the course of getting older like she started to develop thyroid problems um, which you know no one in my, we don't have a doctor in my family nobody could explain uh, you know what what that meant or what that was and certainly you know in those doctor's offices it's not like she received any context or you know anything like that and then uh, for a long time she um, actually for for the for most of her life uh, she was afraid of heart disease because that's what her father passed from and she had a heart surgery when she was a child something that it's like a congenital uh, thing that is very easily uh, repaired and so but just because of that vulnerability, she was always very concerned about heart disease. And so growing up, she was very tuned into the messaging surrounding how to avoid heart disease. So the past couple of decades in this country, obviously, we know that, you know, fat really was at the center, at the focal point of, uh, you know, eating a heart healthy diet, avoiding certain types of fat. Eat your whole grain cereal and your whole Eat grain your, breads and avoid yeah. red meat. Yeah. I mean, at the very least, like whole grains are going to be, and grains in general are, general are going to be benign compared to saturated fat and cholesterol and things like that. But then obviously marketing from the food industry, you see all these like, you're just overwhelmed with red heart logos when you walk through the aisles of your supermarket, right? Just think about like how much money the American Heart Association are, is making for every single one of those stamps. It's insane. It's insane. And yeah, meanwhile, you look at the healthiest foods in the supermarket and they don't have, they don't make health claims. Yeah. And they have like what? One ingredient? Yeah, they are. <laughs> they are the ingredient. It's amazing. But that's pretty much that, that guided my mom's diet throughout her life. So, you know, we had, we didn't have butter. We didn't use butter in my house. We had corn oil and canola the oil, butter. the spray butter. Ugh. I can't believe it's not butter. Yeah. Like, those kinds of things. She, I never saw her eating eggs. I can't remember a single time that my mom uh, growing up would eat eggs. I mean, later, later in life, I got her to, to start eating them, but she was always, you know, deathly afraid of, of literally deathly afraid of dietary cholesterol, um, and then would always, you know, be reaching for the grains, yeah. uh, not even necessarily always whole grain, but because grain products tend to be low fat or fat free, she thought that those were fine to eat. And there's, there's so many claims about them being so high in fiber. Yeah. And it's like, in comparison to actually non-starchy vegetables and the fiber content in those, it's, it's minimal. Exactly. Um, and it's usually just like fake, you know, it's like wheat bran or corn, you know, corn yeah. bran or, and I'm not even, you know, there's now all these like, these isolated fiber extracts on the market, which I'm not, you know, completely convinced about. But, but yeah, so she like, she was a busy woman. She was juggling three children, four if you count my dad. And, you know, she... <laughs> I, I hear that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she was a, and she wasn't, um, there was no internet. My mom, you know, never knew how to really, you know, use technology to any significant degree. So it's not like she was, you know, researching stuff for herself. She would, she would there was like this trickle down of like whatever the New York Times printed about nutrition or whatever the headlines were. And now we know, I mean, thankfully we're starting to wise up to the fact that like media does a terrible job of reporting on health and science, right? Yeah. 
I mean, they love to report on like observational studies because they make these big, they make really amazing headlines. Fear, yeah. Yeah. Fear mongering. Yeah. Let's like, do it at its finest. Exactly. So, but those, that's kind of the stuff that informed my mom's diet throughout the years. So, so the irony was that, you know, at this, at the age of 58, she started to actually develop brain problems. And that caused me to, uh, really sort of roll up my sleeves and become an independent investigator to try to understand why this would have happened to her. And there was a lot that I couldn't understand at first, but I had a background in, you know, a lifelong passion for health and nutrition, something that I've been interested in my whole life. I had a penchant for science. So I started college pre-med and they were actually those pre-medical classes were the, were some of the best grades I'd ever had in, in school. I was never like an A student or anything like that. I was always uh, distracted and, you know, I struggled with aspects of my executive function and things like that, which I think is very common to entrepreneurs. And it's, you know, one of the reasons why I think uh, you see a lot of ADD in the entrepreneur space and why I ultimately ended up taking the path that I did. But nonetheless, in school and science, I always excelled and my professors always really loved me. And so not that that's a replacement for going, you know, through the academic, you know, rigors of, of medical school and anything like that. But having the background in journalism and really understanding how to investigate a topic and to be a skeptic and to be able to identify credible sources and, and cut out the incredible sources and access to people who I could interview. It was really, it gave me, it was an amazing opportunity to, to kind of look into why this would have happened to my mom and what was really going wrong in her health right before my eyes in a way that I think few people in my, in my shoes at the time would be able to do. So I was traumatized, but then ultimately I felt empowered by the research that's out there and the people that I had access to. And so I started to kind of dive in and uh, read about risk factors that relate to brain disease, particularly Alzheimer's disease, which is the most common form of dementia. And I realized that everything's connected. So heart health, brain health, our exposure to toxins in, in the environment, physical health, fitness, these are all uh, crucially interconnected. And it takes almost a creative person to, um, to be able to connect the dots in a way that can make, you know, sort of like the narrative uh, emerge in, in, in terms of how one might live or act or eat to better procure health. And, and so that's really what began the journey. And I wrote Genius Foods and uh, Genius Foods was really what I consider to be the ultimate, uh, you know, care manual, nutritional care manual for the human brain. And then my new book, The Genius Life, uh, which I'm, I'm so excited for yeah, this second book. I'm, it's up on pre-order for it's up on Amazon for pre-order. Everyone, if you want to check it out, I'm so proud of it. It's so the genius life basically, it's it has a nutritional component to it, but nutrition is just one part of the story. Um, what I've realized is that you could be doing doing everything right in terms of your diet and your nutrition, but that's still just one piece of the puzzle in terms of living long and living healthy and having a brain that works as well as it ought to and avoiding conditions like Alzheimer's disease, dementia, cancer, to the best of our knowledge, right? Like, I mean, we don't know everything. I certainly don't purport to have all of the answers, but uh, in terms of what we currently know about how to live well and, and live a long time and avert these kinds of age-related chronic diseases that everybody seems to be suffering from these days, I think, yeah, I'm, I'm just super proud to see what, what people think about it. Well, I'm excited that you're diving into a more broad like subject matter just because not everyone has a genetic predisposition for Alzheimer's. Yeah. Not, you know, we can all protect our brain, I think. Personally, I think Genius Foods is for everyone. But the fact that you're going into more than nutrition and genius life, I think is going to be really exciting for all of the readers out there. I guess over 
the last couple of months when you've been researching for the book, what have been the topics you've been most excited about? And what are some things you can share with people listening that they can do to change their life? Yeah, such a good question. I mean, I think it's it's really about nurturing the physical health of the body. And that includes metabolism, that includes body composition. Um, I have a friend, uh, Richard Isaacson, who's become a colleague. He's, a, he's an Alzheimer's prevention specialist. And he says, don't worry about your genes, G-E-N-E-S. Worry about your genes, your J-E-A-N-S, and how they're fitting and how they might fit differently now than they did you know, a couple of years ago. You really want to get yourself in good physical shape. And I think where I diverge from like the the conventional wisdom that says to just, you know, eat less and move more. I think, you know, we have to acknowledge that the, that the modern food environment and the environment in general that our bodies are, that we've sort of inherited and we've tasked our bodies to having to contend with, it's become toxic in many ways. So whether it's, you know, endocrine disrupting chemicals that are omnipresent in, in the environment or our technology, which creates feelings of addiction and stress and distraction and, um, you know. We're in trouble because as, as little kids growing up, being diagnosed with ADD and then becoming entrepreneurs on our own and following our passions and diving down these deep rabbit holes. Now we're being forced to work through our iPhones and computers. It's there's a, it's just, there's like an endless stream of, of options for us that, that keep us planted on the couch. And I'm, I've been, it's horrible. Yeah, <laughs> it's horrible. And I'm, and I'm not perfect. I've been binge watching, you know, the, this series lately on, on Netflix and I've been like spending way too many hours sedentary, but it's important to remember that, you know, your body influences your brain in so many ways and just being sedentary, literally, you know, for extended periods of time, literally drains blood from your brain. Like the blood falls from your brain. And we know that just simple movements, non-exercise physical activity, like walking, creates micro vacillations in your blood pressure that literally pushes fresh blood up into your brain with like nutrients and oxygen. And so if I'm sedentary for an extended period of time, I mean, I definitely start to feel like the cobwebs uh, accumulating in the brain. Um, My next goal is to figure out how to do this podcast on a walk. Yeah, that would be amazing. Wouldn't that be fun? We just go out on a hike and tape it. I wonder how you could do that. Yeah, that, <laughs> that would be super cool. What other like non-exercise type movements do you suggest for people? Well, I think it's important to remember that. So there's different types of activity. There's there's deliberate exercise, which is crucial. And under that category, we have resistance training, high-intensity interval training, and aerobic exercise. But then uh, a vastly, I think, underappreciated form of activity is non-exercise physical activity, which burns probably the most calories that, you know, that that you're going to burn throughout the day. A lot of people, I think, overestimate, you know, doing cardio in terms of the energy expenditure. But the amount, the calories that we burn, the energy that we expend, just doing simple activities throughout the day, whether it's like chasing your kid around the living yeah, room. Yeah, you need a toddler. A toddler. Well, I have a cat. I have a cat. So I, I spend a good amount of energy chasing her. And, Unexpected, but very yeah. sweet that you have a cat. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, you know, she's, her, shout out to Delilah. Delilah she has her cat. own Instagram, she I hear. Delilah, Delilah the city cat. She's, she's so cute. Um, but yeah, chasing your cat, playing with your cat, doing laundry, um, dancing, uh, whatever it is, having sex, uh, you know, playing guitar, even typing to some degree, standing at your standing desk. Um, the, the, the energy that, the, that these activities burn go under the umbrella of non-exercise activity thermogenesis. So NEAT for short. And NEAT is amazing. There have been studies that have shown that uh, people with higher levels of NEAT have better brain health, have less likelihood of uh, plaque accumul accumulation in their brains, 
neat boosts blood flow to the brain. Um, it helps to normalize lipids in the blood, uh, like triglycerides. Just you know, simple daily movements that are that are not deliberate exercise can actually help lower triglycerides um, and reduce your risk for metabolic syndrome and type two diabetes and heart disease and things like that. Uh, so it's really important to stay active, whatever whatever it takes to get you off the couch and moving. Um, crucially important and. And yeah, it's just as valuable as deliberate exercise, I think. You know, it's crazy that you're bringing this up because I was just reading a book this weekend that said that that non-deliberate activity peaks at six years old in mm. this generation of, of children. And back in um, like our ancestors, it peaked at old age. It peaked when they were physically unable to move. Wow. So you think about like hunting, gathering, like maybe moving, whatever they were doing back in the day, they just they just kept moving. And now in today's day and age, it's six years old, which is so sad to me. Yeah. It's like... It's insane. Yeah. we. I mean, we're at our peak at six. I mean, if you, <laughs> I'm sure you see this all the time, but when you watch your little kid like squat on the floor, they've got like perfect squat form. Chris was joking that it needs to be a drinking game. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, literally the kid squats more than anyone in CrossFit. We call him Cross... We call Bash CrossFit baby. Wow. Because he's constantly like trying to move a high chair around, like physically lifting things that are way too big for him and squatting all day long. He doesn't actually sit on his butt. Wow. He'll just squat and play. Do you think about that range of motion in his hips and his knees and his ankles that like people can't even do now in the gym? I know. We, do, we destroy our bodies with like sitting in cars for extended periods of time, sitting at our desks. And yeah, you look like a little, a little child. They, they know how to squat naturally. Oh yeah, it's just it's like I'll just chill here for a little while. <laughs> yeah, open hips. Yeah, and everything. Interestingly, um, like children actually, they're better. They they vocalize better than than adults as well. They breathe better. They know how to they they inherently come out knowing how to breathe their, with their diaphragms. I um I enjoy playing music and like and singing and the the voice as an instrument has always been like a massive like interest area for me. And it's just really funny. Like children, it's a lot easier for kids to learn how to become singers than adults because they just, they're con way more connected with their diaphragms and like how to actually sing properly. And it's just that that's like another area that just it's becomes destroyed with like the shallow breathing of like modern life. You know, we're also we're tense. Like <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All mouth breathers, just short, short breath. Yeah. It's screwed up. It's like, I mean, you know this Kelly, but like the default state of any organism is health. You know, and and we should. I think people need to know that because when you look around, that like the human state, the human default state seems to be anything but these days. I mean, most people are either overweight or obese. Half the population is either diabetic or pre-diabetic. Which you know, if you are either of those things, we know that that's actually a late marker of having chronically elevated insulin, which is wreaking havoc on your body all the while. So, like the default state for the human animal is actually malaise and ill health but truly that's an anomaly in in the in the universe like the default state of all of us should be health but you know over the course of our lifespans we just like we destroy it and it's not i think it's like partially our fault but it's also just the world that we've inherited yeah i mean i think the more that we um advance our technology and and kind of like the comforts of the modern society the more sedentary people become and the more prescriptions end up in their medicine cabinet yeah. Which is so sad. I'm, it's interesting that you brought up insulin because I think today we're seeing sort of two camps. The people who are just calories in, calories out, and people who are more, I guess, really worried about high blood sugar, elevated insulin. And 
it isn't that calories don't count. I've seen you talk about this a number of times on your Instagram, and I'm curious if it'll be in your next book, but can you go down a rabbit hole with me on this about what you think people should be eating nowadays to prevent illness? Yeah, such a good question. I'm so glad you brought it up because yeah, there are these like warring factions in the nutrition space. Um, I'm not a big advocate of calorie counting. I don't think that you should need to count calories. I think that's an artificial construct. I think it's not intuitive. And the reason for that is you need tools to do it. You need nutrition facts to do it. But if you look at you know hunter-gatherer populations or even our ancestors, um, they were able to somehow maintain lean or relatively lean and healthy bodies up until old age without having to count calories. It's yeah. like this modern concept. They didn't have food scales. <laughs> yeah, they didn't have food scales. So it's a it's a modern solution to a modern problem. And the and the modern problem really is that we're just inundated, you know, our proximity to hyperpalatable convenience foods is just unprecedented in terms of human history. So we're we're constantly around processed foods that that basically short circuit our brains satiety checkpoints and our brains reward centers and they're just they're super easy to overconsume they're hyper calorie dense and so it's one of the reasons why i think calorie counting has has emerged as a way to fight back against that but there are ways to maintain certainly a healthy body um, and good health without you know having to become obsessed with calories and in a time when you know more and more people and you know this better than i do um, are you know struggling with like disordered eating and things like that? I think we really ought to look at the quality of our food um, first, because the quality dictates the quantity. That's what so few people understand is that if you have you know a plate of ultra processed foods in front of you, which is what most people are eating most of the time, right? Sixty percent right. of the calories that most people consume, uh, your average person consumes come from what are called ultra processed foods. So these are like food like products. These are foods that are found in the aisles of your supermarket. Yeah. They're shelf stable. You know, they don't preservatives. go bad. Preservative laden. Yeah. Tons of added sugar, unhealthy fats. Those are the kinds of foods that most people are eating most of the time. And if you put those kinds of foods in front of a person, they're going to eat when, when eating until satiety, until satiated. Um, they're going to end up overindulging and eating more calories than they burn throughout the day easily. You can easily accomplish that because these foods are so calorie dense. They're usually so delicious. They're like mouth porn for the, yeah. for the, for the human animal, right? And they also have a, a, a negative impact on the body's um, metabolism. They're, they're, they're at a metabolic disadvantage because they're so easy to digest because like industrial processing has basically... They're completely cellular. They've been broken down into flowers. They're going to digest into a slurry of of candida and yeast feeding products. Like, yeah, it's so frustrating. And it's funny because I sit down with clients all the time and they beat themselves up because they can't stop eating whatever, their kids' treats or the pizza comes and they eat the whole box. And I'm like, uh... If I ordered that pizza too, I would probably eat the whole pizza. It's yeah. it's not that you don't have the willpower. It's that you're in overdrive and you're not going to feel satisfied until that box is done. But like if I put a huge piece of salmon on your plate, maybe let's say I put like 10 ounces of salmon on your plate, you're going to stop when you feel full. You're not going to finish that whole thing. Yeah. And it's pretty amazing the way that the body works to regulate when you're eating whole foods. A thousand percent. Yeah. I mean, so. 
They've done this to actually over the past year. There was a study that came out of the National Institute of Health. Kevin Hall is the researcher. I'm sure you've seen the, the study, but it was re- it was really great. They found it was a really rigorously controlled uh, crossover trial where they found that people, when exposed to these, when when basically given ultra pro- nothing but ultra processed foods to eat, and allowed to eat to satiety, so like an ad libitum feeding system where you know they were allowed to just basically eat whatever they wanted and then stop as a human being naturally would. They ended up eating a 500 calorie surplus when given these um, these ultra processed foods, and 500 calories per day extra doesn't seem like a lot, but over the course of a week, if you're eating 500 calories a day extra every day of the week, that's a pound of fat yeah. <laughs> that you're gaining um, that week, which nobody wants, right? That extra pound of fat. But then in the crossover, what they did was they basically gave the same people uh, whole foods or at least minimally processed foods, and they found that their appetites were able to easily regulate themselves. And I, be- I believe they ate at a calorie deficit of about 300 calories, which is like weight loss right there. Yeah. So I'm not saying that calories don't matter. They obviously matter. Um, but I don't think that we should be thinking about calories, right? There's so many other things in life that we ought to think about. And there's so many other areas of our lives where, you know, there's room for improvement too. So why, you know, why make more work for yourself at the end of the day? Yeah. And I see so many people become so obsessed with the food that's coming in and out, you know, and that does lend itself to eating disorders and things of that nature, but it's almost like refocusing. Like, what else can you focus on? Can you focus on maybe that is deliberate movement. Maybe that is learning something new, like playing the guitar or singing or, you know, getting outside for neat or staying yeah. inside and chasing a toddler for neat. Yeah. Um, but it is, I think you do a great job of like really motivating people to to find the ways that they can make, you know, live a genius life. So well, I'm really curious because I know you're super into working out and being physically active, which it shows, ladies. And hey. single. <laughs> I'm just wow, thanks for yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding, guys. <laughs> I can get that if you want. Um, no, but, leave it in. Leave it. I'll get some dates out of this. Yeah. <laughs> I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> um, but let's talk about it because I think you have done a good job getting into the research on it. I want to know your tips and tricks for working out, especially being a busy mom and wanting to have that deliberate movement in my life and making time for it every day that I possibly can. Do you think there is like the best kind of movement or the best time of day to move? Or how do you move in your life? Like, give me the details. I want all the good stuff. Yeah. I mean, I try to, uh, I think if you're a mom, you're probably getting a lot of need. And, uh, you know, I'm not a mom, so I don't know for sure. But I'm assuming that you're pretty busy, pretty active. And so for that person, I mean, I think I think resistance training is really like such a powerful exercise modality. And I, I encourage all people to do it. Like women, um, you know, teens, guys. I think guys naturally gravitate to weightlifting and girls, I think, are starting to for sure. But, you know, across the age spectrum too, like older older adults, I think really need to get to the gym and, and, and work to build muscle because it becomes increasingly difficult to build and maintain muscle as you get older. Oh yeah. Your hormones are depleting. Sarcopenia is like, yeah. yeah. It's like trying to outrun this inevitable thing. You're going to lose muscle mass. You know, everybody experiences, you know, menopause, andropause, um, and, and, yeah, it's just you you need to stay strong so that you can not be frail and so that you can c- continue to navigate the world and do neat and do the things that you love to do and having strong healthy muscles uh just you know, I mean it sounds kind of like uh broy to say but it's like it's it's crucially important. Having bigger muscles is it's, it's incredibly important for 
your system of hormones like insulin sensitivity, which we talked about a little bit earlier. You know, muscles are glucose disposal banks, essentially. Like your body has very limited ability to store sugar. And, you know, we live in a time where carbs are just everywhere. Like we're just inundated with cheap, refined carbohydrates. And, you know, part of the human experience is, I guess, indulging in those carbs every once in a while. But to be able to do that in a way that's healthy, you need a place in your body for those carbs to go. And they can only go to your liver or to your muscles. And your liver isn't going to grow. You know, it's only got like a And you don't want a fatty liver, friends. And you don't want a fatty (laughs) liver. You don't want it to grow. Yeah. Uh, And... And so really your muscles are the only other option for that sh- for sugar storage, essentially. And they, they serve as sugar banks. Like when you're uh, working out afterwards, your muscles literally become like a sponge for sugar. And you have the benefit of what's called non-insulin, uh, oh, insulin-independent glucose uptake, which basically, yeah, your muscles become like a sponge. You require less insulin, which is this anabolic growth hormone, which isn't bad, but I think many people today uh, are hyperinsulinemic. They have like you know, their insulin levels are too high too often. And so, yeah, getting to the gym, resistance training, it's also going to make you more confident. It's going to make you feel sexier. Um, It's going to help you to, yeah, fight off frailty. It, you know, reduces inflammation and having stronger muscles is associated with better brain health too. So it's crucially important. And yeah, when going to the gym, I mean, that's what I do. I I focus on uh, big compound lifts. Um, You know, I try to, uh, work my full body. You know, I'm not one of these like guys that's afraid of like- Arm day, leg day? Do yeah. you break it up by day or are we doing the whole body? I, whole body is, is is crucially important. I mean, some days I'll do like a full body uh, routine, which I think hormonally can be very beneficial. I think a lot of people will benefit from that. There was this, I think the thinking from the, from the fitness camp, uh, you know, based on data for a few years was that you really wanted to kind of like have a split and do like a muscle group a week or something like that. But I think what we know today is that you can really work your muscles like multiple times a week. And in fact, higher volume tends to be better. You want to like progressively, you know, increase the volume in your workouts. It's a progressive overload essentially. And that's how you get stronger. So I'm doing, yeah, sometimes full body workouts. Um, other, m- Honestly, most of the time I just go to the gym and I, I work out intuitively. I cycle between push days, pull days, and then uh, leg days. But then on some of those push days, I'm not afraid to go and do various components of my lower body as well. So, you know, glutes, for example, I think it's important. I mean, girls kind of know this, I feel like, <laughs> but guys are, you know, there's this stereotype that like guys go to the gym and all they do is their chest and their biceps, right? And then yeah. girls, all they do is their butt and their like, you know, their legs and stuff. But I think you've got to do, you've got to do, you've got to do it all. You don't want to be out of balance. And Actually, having strong legs, I would say, is probably the most important uh, thing. You biggest know. muscle groups. They're, they're, yeah, there's the biggest about muscle groups. Glucose tanks, right yeah, there. Yeah, glucose tanks. Exactly. There's that saying, right? Thick thighs save lives. Like I think <laughs> yeah. that's. You know, there's probably some truth to that. That's my new motto. It's your new motto. <laughs> oh, yeah. Thick thighs. I was, a, I was a soccer player. Those are my. Those are my muscle groups. Yeah. So, um, so I'm a big advocate of resistance training, and then high intensity interval training. I think is crucial. I don't do a lot of cardio. Because I like to, you know, between high intensity interval training and then just working out with with shorter rest, you know, time, intervals in between my my sets. Yeah, uh, I think you do get like a bit of a cardio workout there. I think as long as you're getting your heart rate up and you're short of breath, yeah. you're you're getting that those heart benefits that you, that people are looking for from from like that type of cardio workouts. Yeah, workout. Yeah. And it's not, but it's also not one size fits all. So if I actually, if I had a desk job and I knew that I was sedentary all day, 
then I probably would want to go to the gym and, and do some cardio, 20 minutes on the elliptical or 30 minutes on the elliptical. And cardio, you know, there is a, a bounty of research showing that cardio, you know, aerobic exercise is beneficial from the standpoint of the brain. Um, I think there's a bias in the literature for that. Uh, but, you know, and it, and it is good for you, but I do think that we can kind of like broaden out the way that we think about cardio to be inclusive of, of other forms of exercise. Definitely. Yeah. So what's coming out in your new book in regards to exercise timing and uh, feeding around an exercise or around a workout? Yeah. Um, well, so timing is a big part of the new book. I talk about how, you know, when you eat may be as important as what you eat. I think what you eat is always going to be more important than timing. So, you know, I get a lot of questions from people who work, um, you know, they do their shift workers and oh. things like that. Yeah, which is difficult. And so, you know, ideally you want to be eating during the day, not at night. But um, for people that don't have a choice, I think what what you eat is, is inevitably going to be um, more important. But for those who have the luxury of choice, um, like us, you know, I don't think it's wise to eat too late at night. So I make the recommendation to stop eating two to three hours before bed. I think there's, there are a number of reasons why that would make sense. Uh, you know, when your body is, you know, awake and alert and you're sort of, you know, it's the daytime and, you know, melatonin is not being secreted by your pineal gland, your hormone system is sort of aligned in a way that's there to, to support daylight associated activity, which is exercise, procuring food, setting up a camp somewhere, you know, like we're meant to be active. And so that's when digestion and metabolism is really like ripping and roaring, you know, but later on in the evening, once, you know, cortisol levels begin to subside and melatonin levels start to inch up, uh, your body's really not thinking about digestion and metabolism and you'll still be able to digest food. Like I'm not, you know, yeah. not trying to be like, uh, hyperbolic, but, um, we do know that peristalsis slows later on in the, um, in the evening. Insulin sensitivity goes down. Insulin sensitivity goes down. There's actually, it's, it's sometimes referred to as afternoon diabetes. You know, the fact that like we were most insulin sensitive in the daytime. And so you really want to sort of taper off your food intake. And there are a number of human studies now coming out showing us that early time restricted feeding is actually very beneficial from the standpoint of, well, multiple, multiple aspects of your metabolic health. So from blood pressure to insulin sensitivity, blood sugar management and things like that, independent of, you know, calories and weight loss and things like that, that just eating an earlier dinner and then cutting off your consumption of food uh, for two to three to four hours before bed um, can be very beneficial. It's like one of my favorite ways to have people intermittent fast. I just say, get up, wait a few hours, maybe you eat 10 to five, and eat, eat dinner like my grandma, but like right there, you don't have to do drastic things to get results. You can get up, move a little, yeah. do your day, and then literally eat early. I did a little personal trial because Bash eats at 5.30. <sighs> so for like a couple weeks over the holidays, I was like, oh, I'll just I'll just like have fun and like eat with my family or whatever, but I'm going to eat when he eats. And it was amazing. I definitely wasn't looking at, I wasn't as hypervigilant with my food and scale went down. Mm. And I wasn't really trying to have it do that. You know, I'm getting ready for got ready for my book tour, my books out, a lot of TV stuff coming up. But it was just, it's just those like simple tools that really I think make such a drastic difference. And it, and it doesn't have to be so all or nothing calorie counting. You're changing your whole life with these sweeping changes. It's like, how do we just integrate these types of things? Yeah. Well, I mean, so like a lot of people would say that time-restricted feeding is really just a 
uh, it's it's purely a tool for calorie control. Right. And I don't think it's purely a tool. I think it I think it does help control yeah. calories. Yeah, for sure. But we do know that. So I mean, if weight loss is purely a function of calories in versus calories out, um, you know, the food that you eat at 6 p.m. isn't going to somehow magically have fewer calories than it will at, you know, 8 p.m. or 9 p.m. It's not like, you know, food gains more calories the later on in the evening that it gets. But eating late at night and disrupting your body's circadian rhythm can influence the calories outside of the equation. So calories out, meaning your calorie expenditure. There have been studies that have shown, and this is, you know, an evolving science, and these studies are not large, you know, population trials, but they are, they do sort of point in a direction that might suggest that eating late at night can actually disrupt hormones that regulate metabolism, like leptin, ghrelin, um, and things like that. So eating late at night might actually um, influence your hunger levels the next day. Eating super late at night might influence, you know, the hormone leptin, which is sort of your metabolic master controller. Uh, it, it regulates calorie expenditure and things like that. Those fat cells are screaming at you, hey, we're full. And yeah. your brain's like, what? What? I can't hear you. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Leptin yeah. resistance. I, I think ghrelin too. Like I, I love hunger hormones and like understanding how that works because I, I mean, I'm sure people listening have had a night where you stayed out late, whether you were drinking or, or just like had a poor night's sleep. I know as a new mom, I'm like being woken up at two or three in the morning. I'm like, what this, what now, buddy? Like, and it is a game changer. Like my, um, the hunger that I have for those highly palatable processed foods is skyrocket compared to a good night's sleep where I'll wake up, feel great. Don't, I don't even feel like eating when I wake up after a great night's sleep like that. Have a little coffee, move my body. And then when those hunger cues start, it's their normal levels. It isn't, I'm starving, feel like my blood sugar's in the tank or it's amazing. It's, yeah. You're so right. I mean, that's another area where, you know, if you look to optimize your sleep, you, that's another way in which you can actually begin to lose weight or maintain your weight uh, without having to think about calories. Because research shows that people who are underslept just by, just by a few hours tend to consume about 400 additional calories the following day. So again, you know, 400 to 500 calories a day spread out over a week, that's a pound of fat. Yeah. You do that chronically throughout the year. I mean, that's like a spare tire. Right. So let's give people some some hit points over the topics we talked about. Sleep hygiene, feeding times, workouts. Like what would you say are your top tips for really like elevating those areas of their life? Yeah. Well, for sleep, I think it's crucial to honestly, you know, not eat for two to three hours before bed. I think you're going to end up sleeping a lot better. Um, and then there are a few other th- ways that you can boost your sleep. Um, and, th- and I talk about a whole myriad of ways in the, in the genius life, but um, I'm so excited. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm pumped. Um, second book, it's like the, the sophomore. You know what they say? Everyone can write a first book. Yeah, it's the second book. Yeah. That's like... It's like, can you ooh, do it? Oh man, the pressure's Was it on. good? Did you hustle? Did you get out there? Did you share your knowledge? Oh man. Yeah, I think... And you did it. I'm, I'm very proud of it. You should be. Yeah, I think uh, making sure that your room is dark and cool, about 65 degrees. You know, we tend to sleep better when it's cool. I'm uh, such a bad mom. Like I what? literally crank Bash's room up because I'm afraid he's going to be freezing. Oh, it's like man. 75. And my husband's like, he's literally cooking like a coconut cookie because he's covered in coconut oil. And then you walk in in the morning and you're like, he does smell like a coconut cookie. Aww. <laughs> Which is cute. That's but cute. I need to, I need to just be okay with the fact that walking into his room and feeling his hands and his feet, that they might be a little bit colder than normal. Yeah. His kids don't sleep under covers. Right. They're just like in their PJs in their crib. Yeah, I don't. I don't know specifically about 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 newborns. 
But, well, I do know that babies, you know, I mean, now we know that adults have this as well, but babies are packed with brown fat, you know, and brown fat, it's like a beautiful thing. It's metabolically active, burns calories, because babies can't shiver, actually. So babies have brown fat that, that is literally there to keep their, their vital organs warm when they're cold. So cute. So cute. I can't wait for you to be a dad. <laughs> I think you're going to be the great dad. The I'm best excited. dad, Max. I'm excited for that. Um, and the future. Got to gotta meet the the appropriate... Uh, Mrs. Lugerfears out there. Yes, yeah, somewhere. <laughs> um, All right. So cold room. Cold room dark. We're, we're, eat, we're finishing uh, dinner and we're not eating anything two to three hours before bed. Yeah. Lately, I've been using um, glycine. I'm a big fan of glycine. So I've been supplementing with about three to four... Generally, four grams of glycine a day before bed. This is um, the amino acid present in collagen. Yeah, it's a third of collagen. So mm-hmm. if you're, you know, if you're getting ten grams of collagen protein a day, you're getting about I don't know, like two to three grams of uh, of of glycine. And that's the threshold, actually, right? Uh, glycine is ten grams of glycine to synthesize new collagen, and we we synthesize three internally. So if yes. you're not supplementing, yeah, your average person consumes about two grams of glycine a day. We synthesize about two to three grams of glycine a day. And that's why Still glycine is not considered an essential amino acid because we can we synthesize a little bit of it. Yeah. But uh, all the research now seems to be pointing to the, the idea that we don't synthesize enough of it for good health, especially for those who are on the standard American diet where they're consuming lots of methionine, mm-hmm. which we've talked about this before, I feel like on a, on a previous we podcast. Gotta, we got to go down that rabbit hole here because I don't know that the Be Well by Kelly community knows much about that. Yeah, so... Vegans and vegetarians actually achieve this balance pretty effortlessly. Um, but if you are an omnivore, which I am, and I advocate for an omnivorous diet, um, and you're you know that person who's just eating lean chicken breast all the time, it's just all muscle meat. Yeah, it's just all you're muscle like, meat, or even lean steak or whatever. Strip ground beef, ground yeah. turkey. If that's if that's your diet, <laughs> you're consuming lots of an amino acid called methionine, which research in animals shows can have a, a life shortening. Uh, effect if you're consuming too much methionine. But they've found that that effect actually is abolished when they add glycine to the to the diets of these animals. So it's really about the same way that, you know, I'm sure you've talked about the omega-3, omega-6 balance, which I think many people are familiar with these days. You need to get a balance of methionine and glycine. And that's easily achieved in in either of two scenarios, you're either eating a vegan or vegetarian diet, or you're eating a nose to tail. I was going to say, yeah, you're 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 eating the way that nature intended, which is the exactly. whole animal and all of all of the byproducts. Exactly, exactly. So that's why you know, as somebody who you know, most of the food options available to me are muscle meat, chicken breasts, and things like sure. that. I'm generally. When given the chance, I eat, you know, I'll drink bone broth. I'll eat the dark meat of chicken, which is rich in collagen. You can always tell because it's sticky. You know, collagen is sticky. I will supplement with collagen, but I also will take additional glycine. The research uh, estimations that I've seen say suggest that we need about 15 grams of glycine for good health for that longevity promoting effect. And the studies show that glycine is anti-inflammatory. It's an antioxidant. It's required for collagen synthesis in the body, which we need for, you know, healthy skin and nails. But uh, even more than that, you're, th- you're talking about like epithelial cells. You're talking about the gut lining. You're talking about- thousand percent. Joints, like we're, we're just to be functioning later in life, preventing leaky gut. Also like what else, you know, amino acids make hormones, neurotransmitters. Like, are you happy? Are you balanced? Yeah. And that, yeah. like a protein deficit is such a problem that I see with clients, not even just specifically glycine, but just- 
amino acids in general. Yeah, I, I advocate for a higher protein diet, but you're co- completely right. And it's so, this is so underappreciated when it comes to like the discussion around collagen. Collagen is not just for healthy skin and nails and hair. It's like one of the reasons, why, the reason why scurvy is so dangerous is because scurvy is an inability of your body to produce collagen when you don't get enough vitamin C. So you need vitamin C to produce collagen. But it's not that when you have scurvy, you die from too many wrinkles. You die because literally your blood vessels require, you know, the collagen to be able to function properly and to be elastic and to, uh, you know, be able to expand and contract um, in, a, in accordance with the needs of, of your environment. And so collagen is crucial for heart health, for um, brain health, obviously, which we know relies on heart health. And you can't, you can't force your body to produce collagen, but you can increases production by consuming the raw materials. So getting adequate or more than adequate vitamin C in your diet uh, is important, but then also glycine, which is, I think, one of the major components of of collagen. So why, why are you taking that at night and how is that supporting sleep? They've done studies where they've shown, so, so glycine actually also acts like a neurotransmitter um, and it sort of can act like GABA in the brain, like Great. you can activate GABA receptors, which is sort of your brain's like calming uh, inhibitory uh, network of, of neurotransmitters. Magnesium and GABA are kind of my, that's like my, and maybe L-theanine is sort of like my favorite little cocktail if someone has real sleep issues in their melatonin users or something like that. I yeah. like that type of a, a yeah. mix, but. Magnesium is great too. Good on glycine. I yeah. Check that out. Because I know, I know I, when it comes to like my smoothie formula, people are really surprised that I'm telling them to have collagen as their protein. I think people underestimate or don't realize that it is a protein source. It's not a complete protein source, but it's what I would consider rounding out your amino acid profile if you are a chicken breast, ground beef type of eater. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's it's as much of a protein source as like a legume, you know, which is yeah. not a complete protein source. But if you're eating a balanced diet with other sources of protein, then yeah, you're adding to your amino acid pool. Like there's a little bit of, of to my not, yeah, there's a little bit of every essential amino acid in collagen with the exception of tryptophan. Right. Which is why it's not a, a, a complete protein source. But you get a little bit of everything else. And when thrown into the mix of all the other foods that you're eating, you don't want to just only eat collagen. Right. Because then you will become deficient. Right. Uh, and tryptophan is needed for serotonin and melatonin. So yeah. that's it's a real quality of life issue. <laughs> yeah. You need, you need your tryptophan for sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there have been studies in humans that have shown that glycine can actually boost sleep efficiency. Um, you know, people people that are underslept tend to feel more well rested when they take glycine the next morning. Um, so yeah, so I'm a big fan of it. But I also think glycine is the another major reason why I take it is for its anti-inflammatory um, abilities and the fact that it's rate limiting in the in the synthesis of glutathione. So I have this theory that this is a theory of mine. I've, I haven't tested it, but I've, I've run it by a few like nutrition experts. If, you, if you're eating like this high methionine diet, you're, you might be kind of limiting your body's ability to produce glutathione, which is the master antioxidant, if you're not getting enough glycine, which is, again, rate limiting in the production of glutathione. And so because you know, of the, the environment that we live in, the fact that I travel a lot and I eat at restaurants you know, a, a fair amount, I want to make sure that my glutathione is like, my glutathione system is up and running as best as it can be. Yeah. For those of you guys that don't know what glutathione is, when you think about antioxidants that you ingest from plant-based sources or animal-based sources or fat-based sources, whatever, you're, you're absorbing those from your food. Glutathione is endogenous, meaning your body produces this as, I almost think of it like they're little firefighters with a hose. 
just like spraying down all of the oxidative stress that your body's coming in contact with. Yeah, totally. It's super important. And it's depleted, you know, as we age, it's uh, depleted when we're exposed to, you know, toxins in the, in the environment, which all of us are. We all have a massive toxin burden just because of it's the nature of the world that we live in. Um, and so, yeah, anything that you can support your own, your body's own glutathione production. Which I, um, going into sort of toxins and endocrine disrupting chemicals, because I know that that's been something you've been pretty passionate about. We were at a party together yeah. a few months ago and you were like, don't grab your receipts. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know? And uh, I think it's it just thinking about toxins and what we come in contact with, I think it can be really overwhelming for, for anyone to start from scratch. I mean, just even going into my mom's household and we're talking about, you know, from her cleaning supplies to lotions that seem, you know, I, that, that are marketed to seem like they're low in toxins and natural, like a, I'm not going to, I'm in a name drop, like an Aveeno or something like that where you're like, oh, oatmeal and yeah, it's made from garbanzo beans or they like put plants on the outside of the packaging. My mom's trying to pick these healthy ingredients and I'm downloading the Think Dirty app and I'm scanning everything for her, the EWG app. And I'm like, well, endocrine disrupting chemicals, like known carcinogens. How, like, what have you uncovered in your research and where can people start? And what are your favorite ways to like clean out those toxins that I guess would be like low hanging fruit? Like, why not? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I try to do a, you know, a pretty thorough lay of the land in the, in the book, The Genius Life. So I came into contact with this organization. It's called the Endocrine Disruption Exchange, which I think people should check out and support. It's a science-based organization. Um, really, their, their sole mission is to raise awareness about all of the many potential endocrine disrupting compounds that are, that are present in, in the environment. And there are about 1,400. Uh, it's sort of like the most wanted list, right, of, of chemicals that have the ability to disrupt our system of hormones. There's about 1,400 of them that they've identified. And so there's no way that you're going to be able to eliminate all 1,400 from your, from your life it's impossible. And in fact, you've likely been exposed to many of these types of chemicals the entirety of your life. The Environmental Working Group actually found about 287 known industrial chemicals in utero, in the wombs of, of like women. You know, it was a random, random sampling of, of children across the United States. And they found that, you know, oftentimes we're exposed in utero to, to chemicals that are clearly linked with um, development problems, cancer, and things like that. So it's frightening, but but it's also empowering because, you know, we're, we're at a point where we can recognize some of these chemicals and and minimize our exposure to them. You're not going to be able to completely eliminate your them from your life, but I think as long as you can sort of like make these incremental changes and then support your body's own detox capacities, which we were just talking about glutathione, and we can talk about, you know, like the real ways in which you can we can help your body detox in a bit. But essentially what I what I think is really important is to minimize your 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 reliance on plastic. So go through your kitchen first and foremost, get rid of plastic Tupperware and things like that. Easy switch, glass easy, Pyrex. Easy switch, glass. Glass, you know, get rid of glass. Uh, I mean, plastic water bottles. Uh, where else would there be like plastic in the kitchen? Well, like, in Teflon, like you're talking about, about the coating inside of nonstick um, pans. So you can swap yeah. those for ceramic yeah. or cast iron. PFOA. It's like there was a, this terrifying movie called Dark Waters about that uh, recently. But yeah, Teflon. Teflon chemicals are now used in um, certain dental tapes. So oral health is super important. But if you floss, which you should every night before you brush, uh, you want to make sure that you're using real dental floss and not that glide dental tape, which is actually made using Teflon. It's one of the, that's how it's so easily able to slide between your teeth. And they found that that actually can leach out 
and uh, and enter circulation. And if it's gliding that easily, is it really pulling plaque off your teeth? Yeah, it's it's not. <laughs> okay. Most most dentists won't even recommend that. But I think a lot of people are more comfortable with it because it easily fits between you know it more easily fits between your teeth. So use real so dental. We're going to share your dental floss recommendations. Yeah, in the show notes. It's just like it's just rope. Yeah, you know, literally, <laughs> and, and, and it's going to be a. And then he heads to the gym. And he throws it around a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> All about the rope. So yeah, cut it, minimizing your, your usage of plastic, not touching store receipts when you have the opportunity to. Um, I think and why? A, well, because they're coated with BPA. Which okay. is, um, and all store receipts? No, you gave me a tip for this. Generally, the, yeah, the ones that are heat sensitive. And you can tell a heat sensitive receipt by you know running your fingernail across it. And if you can write on the receipt with your fingernail, that's a receipt that you definitely want to wash your hands after touching. If you wash your hands after touching, it's not a big deal. But I think, you know, most people underappreciate the amount of hand-to-mouth behavior that they exhibit throughout the day, um, which kind of makes us sound like animals. But we are animals. Mm-hmm. And um, and you know, if you're touching these store receipts and you're and you're rubbing your eyes, or your face, or you know, you're you're eating foods with your hands, that BPA, which is bisphenol A, which is a, a known xenoestrogen, it acts like estrogen in your body is entering circulation. And, you know, for an adult, for an adult, that might not necessarily be the biggest deal. Although, you know, we have no reason to believe that that's safe for a child, for a developing human being that could have lifelong implications potentially, because your hormones are not just there to guide, you know, libido, sexual function, hunger, metabolism, and things like that. And and brain function, which is like, you know, I mean, that's a lot. That's like everything, (laughs) but Hormones are queen. That's what I like to say. Yeah. It's literally, it dictates your life. And dictates your life. It's unbelievable. Yeah. And, and they guide development when you're, when you're a child. So if you're a little, you know, if you're a parent and you're touching these receipts and then you're holding the hand of your, of your baby, that's something that I would definitely become um, more conscious of and just make sure that you're washing your hands after you touch, after you touch those receipts and make sure that your, ch- your children are washing their hands as well. Okay. No plastic, no Teflon, no receipts. That's easy. Those are easy swaps. And I'll put um, some of our favorites in the show notes so people can get glass Pyrex, swap to ceramic, you know, pots and pans, things like that. These aren't overly expensive things that can make a, a pretty drastic change in your life. Yeah. W- what else in your life are you changing to eliminate toxins? Um, well, I definitely make efforts to detox as best I can. I'm a big fan of uh, sweating regularly. So sauna use. I'm a huge... You can huge... come over. I have a sunlit on the patio. You do? Yeah. <laughs> that was amazing. my push present. Oh my God. Chris was like, what do you want? I was like, well, I don't want any like jewelry or anything. I'd like a You're so sauna, cool. <laughs> sauna for the patio. That's amazing. Yeah. I don't have nightstands, but I have a sauna. I love that. <laughs> Priorities. Yeah. I mean, sweating is a major modality by which we excrete a lot of these toxins. Um, it comes out in our sweat. Uh, it also, you know, toxins come out in our pee, poop, pee poop, pee poop and perspire. Those are the three, the three P's of healthy detoxification. Crucially, crucially important. So for people that are constipated, for people who are dehydrated, and for people who don't regularly sweat, I mean, you're accumulating these, these toxins. And not to fear monger, it's not that any one of them is like that dangerous that, you know, that we should be, you know, that, that we should live our lives in fear of. But it's the overall like toxin burden of everything that we're exposed to, whether it's you know pesticide and herbicide re- residues in our in our produce, or antibiotics in our meat and our milk, or you know heavy metals that we're exposed to via our tap water that come out in like old drains, or you know if you live in a home that was painted or built prior to 1978, you know lead-based paints that you might be exposed to, or asbestos, uh, or um, I mean there's just there's so many examples like. 
We just tried to do things too quickly, whether it's like industrially raised animals and produce or just like quick fixes, which, which feels like the end of the 60s to like the, the end of the 90s. It felt like everything, we just wanted it to be fast, quick, and easy. And we're the side effects of that are all coming out now. Yeah. 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 I mean, I take the approach that that these kind of new compounds, you know, industrial compounds should be guilty until proven innocent. You know, it's not like the justice system. I think in a, in a healthy justice system, you should be innocent until proven guilty. But for compounds like, uh, I don't know, BPA or their newer replacements, because now people are starting to be aware of BPA. There's BPS and BPF. And it's like this chemical game of whack-a-mole, basically, where as soon as like consumers become aware, aware of, you know, any one given chemical. I mean, that's a good thing, right? The fact that we have the internet, the fact that we can raise awareness for these things. But like manufacturers are really quick to pivot these days, right? And they can just, they can come up with other chemicals that are that are basically identical. Tweaking and, the compound to get out of it. Yeah, and there's no reason to believe that these compounds are, are safe. So I mean, like BPA and BPS, they're just as, they're the same chemical basically. And so when you see a plastic product and it says BPA free, is it really going to be free of all bisphenols? Is it really going to be safe? And I think it's uh, it's hard to say, but yeah. there's really no good data to go on to, to suggest that they are, so. Yeah, no, I know. Living here in LA and like, you know, we have our tap water and then I use a, I use a water filter. I use a Berkey. I know you have a water filter that you like too. I think that that's like a great in- investment because whether it's you're taking stainless steel or glass and you're leaving your house with a water, your own water, or you have a way to refill from like filtered water, that's a great way to lower your plastic, you know, even just like the contact to the food you're eating. Yeah. I mean, that's a, I'm glad you brought up water. I mean, a lot of these endocrine disrupting chemicals are, are ubiquitous in the water supply. You know, I, f- I forget which exactly it was, but I mean, many of them are, are omnipresent in drinking water all around the United States, whether it's, you know, PFOA or related chemicals or, or BPA. You can find this stuff in water, not to mention that there's there tend to be high levels of heavy metals in our water. You know, it's not like your tap water is coming from like a mineral spring. It's running through the old pipes in your buildings and you have no idea how those pipes are maintained. So I use a reverse osmosis water filter, which I know, you know, you use too, which is really the best way to clean up your water. And you can see the job that that your water purifier is doing if you just go on, you can go on Amazon and buy a cheap uh, total dissolved solids meter, which doesn't measure everything in the water, but it measures heavy metals and things like that. And you'll see that by running it through that, you know, one of these purifiers, you basically have a pretty high, you'll usually find like a pretty high amount of dissolved solids and it can remove all of them, which I'm not saying that all of them are bad actually, because many of many of those solids are actually minerals, minerals that you do yeah. want and you can add them back in after the fact. Yeah. But yeah, often you'll get like lead in the water and things like that. That's a great point because I think people are afraid of reverse osmosis because they're like, you're pulling all the minerals out and you can always add those back in. I have a like a mineral dropper here that we just add back into our water. I think it's a great and easy tool to do. So we'll add we'll add both of those into the show notes as well. Dope. I think we've touched on a lot of things that I'm really excited about that you've been sharing recently. When it comes to water, do you have, I guess, a goal that you try to, you know, a, a certain amount that you try to drink each day or? I mean, I think as long as you're peeing clear, relatively clear, I think that's fine. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm not like, like... If you're if you're doing the, you're not a gallon guy. No, I'm like there are some guys in the gym that walk around with those like gallon no, water bottles. No, I know. Yeah. <laughs> no, 
Um, no, I mean, do you also do grunt when you lift your weights too? No. Okay. Maybe I do. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I mean it's pretty normal that you would. Is if it? You were lifting heavy, but I hate the word grunt. Grunt is like a it's like such a weird word. I, mean, I don't know why. <laughs> no, I mean, I'll drink like broths. I'll you know eat fresh produce. You get water from your food to a significant yeah, degree. About twenty percent. Um, yeah. Uh, if you're eating produce, I guess we're not talking about fast food. Yeah, for sure. Or dried fruit, but like fresh produce. Yeah, you're getting like a significant amount of water. I drink like teas lately. I've been interested in in tea. But yeah, what else? I mean, I think being present with your food, that's something that I learned that was pretty kind of interesting, uh, you know, that I wrote about in the in the in the new book. But basically the takeaway is if you if you just are more present with your food and your meals, you're gonna end up eating less. They've done studies, I believe the journal came out this year or last year. The Journal of Obesity and Behavior found that people who are distracted while they're eating, whether it's like with a printed material like a magazine or your smartphone or you're watching TV, if you're eating while you're doing any of those things, you're gonna consume about 15% more calories. Great takeaway. Yeah, great takeaway. So just be more, put the phone away. Another reason to sit down with your family and just have a conversation. Exactly. You're gonna eat less. So another way in which you could be not, not, not only might you lose weight without having to count calories, but it's a way in which you may be actually gaining weight unintentionally. Right. If you're just eating with your uh, with your smartphone in your hand all the time, you're probably eating about fifteen percent more calories, um, according to this research. So, important takeaway for people that are that are like struggling with weight and things like that. Well, this has been phenomenal, Max. I'm oh. so excited for your new book. I can't even handle it. Thank you, Kelly. You're luminous. You're a light. <laughs> and any any chance you know any opportunity I have to chat with you and hang with you. This is like the, ge- the Genius Life uh, podcast and the Be All by Kelly podcast. It's just like Max is back. Max is back. Um, well, where can people follow along? Where can they find you? And what what can they expect to find when they come hit follow? Oh man, well, definitely come and say hi on Instagram. I'm at Max Lugavere, L-U-G-A-V-E-R-E. And yeah, I post a lot of information. So I'm not one of these like guys on Instagram who's like showing like shirtless selfies or, I mean, like, I think I have like my twice annual shirtless selfie that I put up on my story. It's okay. So you, you work, you work hard for your abs. You can put them up twice a year. But I'm not like, yeah, I'm not. Yeah, no, you're not getting girls following you because you're showing your bot off. I'm not. Yeah, I'm not interested in like, I didn't get into this for like ego gratification or to make money or anything like that. Like I got into it because, you know, my mom, which is the, who's the person I love most in the world, got sick and she really suffered. And if I could help, you know, prevent you know, one person from going down the road that my mom went down, then it'll, you know, have been worth it for me. And that's really what I'm interested in. And it's a, and it's a real lifelong journey for me every day. I'm like reading the new studies, you know, as they come out. Um, and, and whenever I read new stuff, new insights, new actionable ways in which to integrate the science, I'm, I'm sharing it with my followers. So yeah, if you come and follow me on, on Instagram, you'll get lots of nerdy content. And then I have my own podcast called The Genius Life. And that's also the name of my new book, The Genius Life. So you guys definitely need to go follow along, Max. It has been such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for coming over. And uh, I'll see you guys next time. For sure. Thank you for listening to Be Well by Kelly. Please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at bewellbykelly.com and follow me on Instagram at bewellbykelly. I would love if you picked up my books, Body Love and Body Love Every Day. They're sold on Amazon and at all major booksellers.